What's up, y'all? This is the Blacklist Podcast, and I am one of your two hosts, Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of The Blacklist. And I am your second host, Kate Hagan, director of community at The Blacklist. And we are coming to you recorded from a mile beneath the Hollywood sign in a bunker surrounded by piles of screenplays and VHS tapes. Kate, what are you getting into uh, during our extreme social distancing? I am revisiting my good friends at County General. I have been deeply immersed in the world of ER. Only true 90s kids will understand that ER is the one true medical show. I don't need this Grey's Anatomy, uh, <laughs> which is great. But uh, give me George Clooney and Juliana Margulies going back and forth with their romance constantly. That's where I'm at. How about you, Franklin? Trying to catch up on screenplays. Honestly, just kind of trying to take it easy. Probably could be doing more work and increasingly frustrated by people reminding everybody that Newton created calculus um, during uh, the quarantine of the plague and Shakespeare wrote King Lear. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get there. (laughs) We'll get there. In the meantime, we have a podcast episode. We have an interview with Prentice Penny. Uh, You know him as a writer of Girlfriends, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Scrubs, Happy Endings, and the showrunner of Insecure. Kate, you are an Insecure fan, if I'm not mistaken. I am. I'm so excited. It's going to be back on HBO in a couple of weeks. I think April 12th is the drop date for that. I cannot wait to see what Issa and Lawrence get up to this season. I think it's going to be some shenanigans. Bad decisions. I think that they're going to get up to some bad decisions. That is why we tune in, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Prentice also has a new movie that he is the writer and director of. It is his first feature called Uncorked. It is available on Netflix on March 27th. I have had the good fortune of watching it, and it includes many of my favorite things, among them barbecue, wine, and brilliant performances by Courtney B. Vance, Nisi Nash, and newcomer Mamadou Ati. I believe that is how you pronounce his last name, but it's a great performance, and that is the most important thing. Seriously, uh, if you have the Netflix, watch his movie on March 27th. It is a good way to spend two hours of your time while away from everybody else. Let's listen to that conversation. What do you think, Kate? Shall we? Yeah, I think so. We're going to talk to Prentice about his work in TV, his love for Spike Lee, John Hughes, and much more. Let's do it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So let's just jump in. What was the first movie you ever saw in a theater? Uh, the first movie I remember seeing in the theater was Star Wars. Well, do you like? Do you have specific memories of the experience? Yeah, like I remember. Um, I think I was like four or five years old, and it was at the Sunset 
Man Chinese. Over oh, there. All, right, all right. And they were having like a big, like I remember they were having like all the characters, like they would have like people in Stormtrooper costumes yeah. and whatever. And I think there was an elevator. In my mind, there's an elevator. And when it opened up, there was like a guy in a Darth Vader costume. So it was like the movie where it's like the door is open and there's right. Darth Vader with like two Stormtroopers behind him. And I just remember yelling uh, and freaking out. And uh, <laughs> and my mom and dad took me. And the one thing I was equated about that, it was such a great movie, obviously, I love. and But in my mind... Then right after the movies, there, there used to be a hamburger hamlet. That just shows you how long ago. Oh, yeah, no, there were hamburger yeah. hamlets. Uh, they took me across the street and told me they were getting divorced. So it was oh, this sure. weird thing of like, I think they were like buttering me up. To right, have it was this, like, like let's take him to Star Wars yeah. and then yeah, deliver yeah. the bad news. deliver the bad news. Were you then a Star Wars kid? Did this start you on the path of being way into oh, Star 100%. Wars? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, totally. Wait, so, but you saw... Darth Vader as you were going into the theater or so, as no, you were leaving, which no, would be so we more were, traumatizing. It was, it, was all, it was all bad. We were actually going to the second le- like level, I think, right. or the, of the thing. So we were already in the theater super oh, pumped. Oh, wow. So you were like in the theater super pumped and yeah, there's Darth yeah. Vader there's right Darth in Vader. front of you. And there's That's, Darth Vader. Uh, yeah, that would, be, that would be a lot yeah. for a four to seven year yeah. old. Yeah. So, Prentice, we're talking about Star Wars. Is there a movie during this time that made you fall in love with movies before Star Wars? I think the movie that made me like, obviously I saw good movies like growing up, but School Days was the movie that made me believe, not only fall in love with like cinema in a different way, but made me believe also I could do this. Right. Um, Cause Spike was still young enough right. to, and I, he used to have these books Oh, I have all of them. Yes, yeah, I still yeah. have mine too. Mike Lee's got to have yep, it. Yep, it's basically yep. his, journals it's his journals as he made these movies. Yes, and it was, you know, I was 14 years old, 15 years old, and you're reading about like, you know, studio heads as like he's yeah. go, like going to go meet with him and the balls of this kid who's like 24 years old yeah. to like what he wanted to do. It was just like, one, like a black man being in there talking like this was so right. <laughs> crazy. Like the head of Columbia's like, nah, I'm not doing that. Yeah. You know, and it's like, he's still the same guy. You know what I mean? And so it was just like, I was like, oh, and even the way like the whole musical sequence really is what was like, I was like, oh, you don't have to like stick to like the straight form of this, right? Because right. it totally is the one thing in that movie that's the shift of, because the whole thing is in real time, obviously, as right. we're watching it all play out. And then there's just this musical sequence in the middle. And right. I was like, that's amazing. And so those types of things made me go like, oh, this is like beautiful. Are you ever working on any, like uh, a number of folks we've talked to are making Super 8 movies or even like camcorder movies? Were you ever making anything as a teenager reading these Spike Lee books and being like, I can do that? Yeah, I had used to bum. My my uh, cousin had a VHS uh, like an old big like the old over the like shoulder the old over the shoulder with like the shoulder harness thing yeah. to like uh, like help you and uh, I used to just bum those things and he, I don't know even know why he was super into it he was just like record <laughs> our, our our family reunions and I think he worked at like the post office he just had all this video equipment right and uh, he there's was always like, one in the family yes, that just like is. has all yeah. of the equipment for some reason you're he, like yeah yeah he was yeah. always yeah I'm about to make these movies about to make these movies but not, but not making movies right and uh, but thank God for him because he just would like let me use it whenever I wanted to and I would make these really bad movies but um, and ed- have to edit them in the camera oh yeah it's all in camera yeah. Yeah. it's yeah. all in camera so I'd be like okay stop now I gotta hit rec- you know 
it's like making like a yep. mixtape off the radio. You're like, I don't want the DJ to talk. And so that's how I was making movies back then. Do you have any of those VHSs lying around no, anywhere? No. Are you, are, what are would you, you even sh- play them on now? I mean, uh, that- excuse me, VCRs are in great supply <laughs> at the Goodwills of Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true. I remember you, Kate, you had like, a, it was like a journey to find one that worked, right? I have quite a story. I have four VCRs in my home right oh my now. God. Yeah, yeah. They're findable, but I, that's a whole different digression about what's not available <laughs> on DVD that's available on VHS. Anyway. My friend, is, you have the show Upscale, which is all about sort of living the best mm-hmm. life possible without spending money like a billionaire. Personally, I'm a big fan because that's the life I'm trying to live. What is the upscale movie experience for you? Like, what's the ideal movie-going experience? Theater, Ooh. what are you eating, what are you drinking, where are you going? What's we- you know what's so funny is uh, having three kids and a busy schedule, I don't make it to the movies as much Fair as enough. I used to. And most of the movies I see are like Sonic. <laughs> and uh, and and, it, and they're great, right. uh, but it's mostly kid movies. Got it. Uh, but the theater that I do love in LA is I love IPIC ah, in, there we go. in Westwood, yep. which is such a great like. It sounds great. Obviously, I like ArcLight's great, so it's like mm. that's kind of like the thing. But I think in terms of IPIC, in terms of like the whole like I want to have like a nice drink with right. my wife, and like the food is really nice, and it's just chill. Like it's just super chill, and yeah. so there's not a lot of chaotic things happening at right. IPIC. It's pretty much if you're paying forty bucks for a movie, <laughs> it, it better be chill. <laughs> it better be chill. Uh, so so I think IPIC and Westwood is at least, at least my favorite so far in LA. What's your go-to movie snack situation? Ooh. Ooh, beside alcohol. <laughs> That's uh, a valid answer. <laughs> That's a valid answer for sure. Uh, you know, it really just depends on what, the, I mean, I still just love popcorn. As a movie, like popcorn and a hot dog in a movie theater is still it's the best. The it's best. still the go-to. I agree. Um, and there is something very different about movie popcorn versus non-movie popcorn. 100%. And I don't know what the chemical, like, so we need We need to get our best scientists on uh, this. It's a goop that you put in the popcorn, having made many uh, rounds right. of it's goop. What's the goop? Yeah. But what it's is the goop? goop? It's literally, I can't remember what it's called right now, but I remember we would get these, like, industrial-sized jugs when I was working at Facets in Chicago, and you would just put one teaspoon of the goop in the popcorn. And was that's it called? Goop? I it was some kind of just like chemical flavoring, <laughs> right. and you're like delicious. I'm sure yeah. it's cancer. Yeah, sure yeah it's, it's, it's like an MSG, or I mean, who knows? It's coronavirus. It's uh, what about your home theater situation? If you're seeing a lot of movies in your home, yeah. it, does that become then the sort of theatrical experience, like watching movies in your home? Yeah, weirdly, like we just moved, and so we just got like a new. I don't want to. We got this like 82 inch TV. And it's very nice. (laughs) (laughs) And I just watched um, Four vs. Ferrari on it. That's the first movie I watched on it. And I was like, oh. Look, if you got an 82-inch screen, you got to have a good speaker setup, too, then. Weirdly, we just have a Bose soundbar. Really? It does the job? I had to put on a little, like, headphone thing before... As I connected it, right. and it was like you have to move around the room with these weird headphones on, and it bounces the sound like echo location oh. off your thing, and then you it made this. I was like, oh, this is like surround sound without. Right, so I was gonna say, Four versus Ferrari is a movie that my understanding is it relies heavily on the sound, the, the sound experience. Oh, it sounded like I was gonna full get run over. <laughs> yeah. that, that is. Not technically an ad, but I think it's an ad. Um, all right, so then we flip to from from best viewing experiences. What is the oddest place you've ever watched a movie? Oof, the oddest. So we've place. had like for me, it was I watched like Water for Chocolate in the back room of a bar in Durban, South Africa. <laughs> I, I still don't know why it was playing there. Right. Not sure how I found like found myself in that right. room, but definitely the oddest place I've ever watched a movie. The the oddest place <laughs> I watched a movie was I think. 
uh, when my wife had to be rushed to the emergency room Christmas Eve night and we watched uh, The Color Purple. Uh, in the uh, in an urgent care in Playa del Rey yeah, that looked was... like it was from the 70s. And so it was actually a big TV. It was a big TV. It wasn't a flat screen. It was right. like an old school that had like a like tube a in the back. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was like watching while you're hearing like patients yell and scream and you're watching like Whoopi Goldberg do the hand claps with her sister <laughs> and not want to get molested by Danny Glover. <laughs> it's like Merry Christmas. That, that definitely qualifies. That yeah. is an answer that I think we can accept. We're kind of talking around this idea of the cinematic canon and movies that are great films by reputation, but is there anything that's considered to be a great movie that you still refuse to watch? Oof. Oof. That's a good question. I think right now I'm just getting kind of like in general impatient with just like like watching like white people sometimes just be like complain about small things. I movies like that. I'm just like, I can't. The white people I can't problem do. movie. We <laughs> yeah. can call it what it is. Yeah. There's no shame I just can't. here. It's hard to get emotionally invested. Like yeah. I, I could it like, be a white guy in his late twenties who needs to fix his relationships <laughs> and get his shit together? Perhaps. Yeah, those yeah. movies I just can't. I yeah. just can't. I just can't. I can't. Well, and there are a lot of them. Yeah. Too many, one might even yeah. say. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, uh, the flip side of that, of course, is like, what are the things that you avoided watching that someone finally like, just sort of bullied you into watching and you were like, you know what, that, that was kind of dope. You know, weirdly, uh, Jojo Rabbit really? was a movie I was not caring to see. I was just like, I, Hitler, I, little <laughs> right. boy, little white boy. I was like, what? Like, he has to learn Jewish people are cool. Like, I was like, what? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, what? Fair. And then I turned it on and I was like, Taika Waititi. Taika, Taika, we go away. That, that, that script was actually on the blacklist. I know, like, Years I know. ago. And funny enough, I met Taika 16 years ago at Sundance uh-huh. when he was there with his first short film. We literally Jesus. met at a party and he was like, oh, what are you here for? And I was like, oh, I'm an assistant at CAA. And he's like, I've got a short film here. And I was like, oh, I, I'll watch it. And I, I remember him giving me the DVD wow. and going back that night, a little drunk, watching the short and being giving it to my boss and being like, this guy seems really cool and he seems talented. You should like sign him. She signed him. Are you serious? Still his agent, Rowena Arguelles. Yeah. Oh my God, that's yeah. crazy. It's uh, that yeah, it was funny because we all were hanging out like the Oscar night. It was like this was literally sixteen years in the making. So he owes you. Everything. I mean, he's his movies have done more than give back. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, look, it was cool sort of to have some very very small part in his story because absolutely yeah, wildly talented. What was it like when you got that script? Like, what was it? I mean, I just remember reading it and being like, well, no one's going to make this. Um, which is, look, I mean, the reality of so many things in the black list, right? Is course, that, like, yeah. we can all know they're amazing, but that doesn't mean that someone's going to yep, pull the trigger and give them money. But, you know, I think we've proven over time that if you make the yes. ones from the blacklist, they do pretty well. Yes. So. Yeah, they do. So, yeah. We like all sorts of movies, and that sometimes includes loving bad movies. So, what's a movie that you love that is generally agreed upon to be terrible that you will defend forever? We're talking like less than 25% on a Rotten Tomatoes score. Ooh. Um, I stole this question from Ava DuVernay, by the way. We were at, and what was, was her answer? Uh, I don't remember uh-huh. But I do remember being, it was a dinner at Sundance the year middle of nowhere was there and she asked everybody at the table this question. And so it's sort of like the Ava question, but like, I think it's a really good one. I'll tell you my answer. Yeah, what's yours? Last Dragon. 
Oh, that's an awesome movie. <laughs> I see. I but look aesthetically, right? Like from a critical Hollywood perspective, ain't nobody checking for that movie quality was. But it touches. Oh, but, but it matters. It's, it's important. So yeah. So that, uh, that that's maybe 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 I have to change my answer then. Apparently, if it's that good. No, Dr- Last Dragon's awesome. I mean, it, again, it could be the time frame because I was right. We know, were of an age where yes, that was the thing. Yes, yes. Get Criterion on uh, the horn. Oh my God! I would one hundred percent watch a Criterion. Oh my yeah. God! I would one hundred percent watch a Criterion. We do need to get somebody yeah. on that mission. IMAC talking about the stories of vanity princess and those you, have pa- you got you got juice you should talk to criterion about this make this happen <laughs> i'm gonna see what i can do uh weirdly the movie that like is and i don't think it's like critically bad it's just time capsule which is weird science oh good choice which, yeah. yeah because there's so much racist sometimes undertones in those old movies and i still when i watch it i go i don't care <laughs> <laughs> yeah. every 80s comedy it's like is it going to be racism sexism oh, homophobia that movie, yeah. that movie is all though that movie is all, all of the above yeah. it's, it's racist it's homophobic it's yep. sexist it's it's really yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's it's bad but it's still delightful it's and still has a amazing. great theme song and still great <laughs> yeah still great i feel like people have tried to remake that in recent many years, times and it and never no works no one's ever made it work because they're not john hughes they're not john yeah. hughes exactly. yeah exactly john hughes is, is awesome i mean um, Speaking of great comedies, yeah. you know, you have written some of the be- on the best television comedies of the last decade, um, and I think we're having a real renaissance for comedy on TV. You know, great shows like Girlfriends, Scrubs, Happy Endings, Brooklyn Nine Nine, Insecure. It's really sort of offensive how many of the good comedies you've written on. <laughs> like, spread that shit around. My bad. But I think, you know, we are having a moment where cinematic comedy is not really the same as it was in the 90s or the yeah. 80s. What are your some of your favorite comedies from the last 10 years? Of, of movies? Movies, mm. yeah. You know, that's a great question because I agree. There's not really like, I feel like the studio movies sometimes get super broad. Yep. In ways that are like, what is, it just is like, I'm not sure. Because I think the, the great thing about 80s comedies, right? And I think even 90s to some degree too, was they were all rooted in like something true and human. Like even if you just take like a movie like Home Alone, right? Mm-hmm. It's like at its core level, it's about a kid being left alone, right? It's this thing we all think we want, right? right. And you're like, be careful what you wish for. But it's really like when you miss family, right? Like I don't really want to be alone, right? It just taps into something so primal. You leave your kid supermarket or you leave your kid behind yep. and it just taps into things immediately that you, one, get, right? I think sometimes these things also feel very high concepty as opposed to like, let's just make it truthful and, and real. And I think like, I think they just all feel fake and they're like, there's nothing emotional to tap into. And I think all those things like Breakfast Club or, or again, even Weird Science, it's like you're, you're an ostracized kid and you want to fit in, you know, yep. and so you make a, this thing that you think will get you there and that's not it, you know? And yep. I, so I think like, you know, and, and just concepts that aren't gettable. I mean, weirdly, like you talk about movies that you don't want to apologize for, yeah. but a comedy that I remember being like, this is so great. Why didn't I think of this? Just at a, like at a premise level was The Hangover. Yeah. yeah, because yeah. what was so great about the movie was you're like everybody's been on that kind of a trip yep. where it gets out of hand, and like what ha- what would happen if you lost your friend on this? And it's just like you know what I mean. And it's not a and ton we of all mo- have the one friend. Yes, yes. <laughs> we always have the one yeah. friend who's doing too much. And yep. I think like at that like oh like it's I was like so I saw that and I was like so mad at myself because I was like I'm sure I got people where you're just like yes this is so easily. Yeah. We've all been here. Yeah, it's funny. We had Paul Feig on the show as well. We were thinking in the context of Bridesmaids. It's a similar thing, Another right? Like, 
we're all part of this wedding, but I'm the poor one. Yep. Yeah. That is sort of universally relatable yep. on some level because, you know, we're all the poor ones sometimes, no matter how much money you get. And, and even deeper than that, it's like even with Kristen Wiig, it's like I'm losing my friend. Right. Right. And I'm losing her also to this other girl. Right. And I don't want to feel like I'm being like I'm being kind of like left behind. Like I'm like this one era of my life and this friendship. I'm kind of going to have to mourn this loss of this. And that's really like what I think that movie is like taps into really well. I agree. I mean, I think that, yeah, there's a coming of age element, uh, a sort of like post coming of age, coming of age. Well, there's like, women don't usually get to do the sort of like, I'm a fuck up narrative and I'm getting my shit together. And I think that's one of the great things about Bridesmaids is it takes that sort of character and gives it to Kristen Wiig, but it roots it in such real stuff. Like just the, when she shows up at the bridal shower and is so (laughs) out of her depth. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, we have all, especially I feel like women too, you're like, oh my God, I showed up to this thing and I am not wearing the right dress (laughs) and now I have to deal with this. Okay, Cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like this is a natural transition to insecure. Um, sort of people who are fucking up and trying to figure it out. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Can you just walk us through how, like, Awkward Black Girl became insecure and sort of where you entered into the process? So where I entered into the process was um, Issa and Larry had um, written the pilot, and it was being greenlit to be shot. But Larry had gotten his talk show, um, I think it was, I forget what the name was, uh, Nightly Show. Nightly Show, yeah. And um, so he was going to go host that. So they didn't have a showrunner. And I happened to be on Brooklyn Nine-Nine at the time. And, and those were a great two years, but I, I was also like creatively like ready to like be yeah. in a different position. And um, I, it's funny, my mom had read an article about Issa like a year or so before this came out, and we're from the same neighborhood, like uh, like View Park in L.A. And she was like, "Baby, there's this girl doing this thing, and da, 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 da. her name is Issa Rae, and da, da. do you know her? You know how I'm like, do you know her? <laughs> I, I get yeah. that phone call like, yeah. once a week. And yeah. I was like, no, I, I don't know her, but like, good for her. Like, that's so dope. So that's right. kind of how I, but I didn't know anything else past that. Right. And and then um, I saw the web series. I was like, oh, this is super funny. I wonder what's going to happen with this. And then I knew it was at HBO. But, you know, you don't know with HBO, like, when stuff's going to yeah. happen or whatever. And when I saw it was going, I was like, oh, like, I felt like I read the script. And I was like, obviously, there's so many things in that script to relate to, of course. And I was from the same neighborhood as her. Um, and I just knew I'd worked at a nonprofit. There were so many things I could just tap into. Um, and so I, I, and weirdly, at the time, one of my um, agents, Ashley Holland, who happened to be at CAA oh, at the yeah, time. I know Ashley well. Um, yeah, she's great. Well, uh, went to college with Issa. That's right. And so she Stanford reached out. Crew. Yeah, she yeah. reached out. This whole Stanford crew, she reached out. And then Lena Waith, who was an assistant 
assistant or when, like when I was on Girlfriends, uh, they were friends. And so I called Lena. I was like, hey, can you talk to her? And so I actually wrote Issa a letter um, about why I thought I'd be a good fit to like help run her show or at least run the pilot. And uh, we met and we met at, um, in Lemur Park at her book signing. And we talked for like 15 minutes and then we realized we like grew up a block over from each other. Oh, wow. And her brothers and I went to the same elementary school. And you just like, you just had like a shorthand. We didn't right. have to like explain a bunch of stuff. And after 15 minutes, we were like, yeah, let's do this. And so this was literally, like, so she's looking for someone to run the show yeah. to replace Larry. Y'all yeah. had a 15 minute conversation yeah. in the book signing. You realized that, okay, we basically grew up yep. with the same sort of childhood. Yep. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then... I mean, walk us through the process of like making the show. Because I mean, I, th I think it's, I think it's very easy to say, oh yeah, there was this sort of you know digital web series, and, right. and we just sort right. of you know translated it to television, right. and it became this hugely successful right. thing that like like my college roommates who know nothing of Compton, right. <laughs> right. will sing Broken Pussy to this day. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Shout like, out to them. Yeah. So, but like, but like, walk us through the like how you take that and sort of turn it into what it's become, just so, as a showrunner and as a partner to, to a creative like you said. Absolutely. I mean, I think like one of the things that we obviously like in the and really in the pilot, there's a lot of voiceover that we tr that we kept for the some of the pilot, but tried to like pan down because we knew in series we probably wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. And you know, and East often says like awkward black girls like the college her and right. taking insecure is like how do you take a five minute thing and make it a twenty five minute thing, right. right? And so what we just tried to do always was like continually build on the ideas that were at least conceptually in the pilot and go, okay, what does this look like though as a full show, right? And so even when the first thing I think we had to figure out was like how do we work together? And I think that was the beauty like the pilot gave us was like, oh, okay, because we were filming for like six days and we had to figure out and we had gone through the process of obviously casting, and so we had to mm -hmm. figure it out, okay, how we interact in this sort of way creatively. But you know, and when you're in the middle of filming, I had not really seen her act, you know, right. fully beside you know beside the web series, right. and you know, Yvonne Orgy was new, and and Jay Ellis obviously had done some stuff, but he's not carrying the show, right? Um, and we had to figure out like Melina's a first time director in terms of narrative, and yeah. so it was a lot of things where you're like, I had the most experience at the time, right? Um, so you're like trying to figure out, okay, how do we move all these pieces, right? And I think. Issa and I, one, realized that obviously we had a, a ton of respect for each other and what we both brought to the table. I think that always has stayed in the forefront of us making the show. And I've always viewed the show, and I talked to, um, speaking again, like you don't know how life's going to take you there, is uh, when I was on Happy Endings, uh, like the creator of that show is David Cass, who does Black Monday now. Right. Uh, but the, the showrunner who was helping him was a guy named Jonathan Groff that actually helped Kenya Barris when he was doing Blackish. Yeah. And so the one thing Groff told me was like, you know, always be in service of what you want the person that created the show to be. Right. And so for that, I always view the show. I always say, like, I'm the the stepdad that the kid doesn't know wasn't the dad. Like, I'm like, Larry and Issa were the birth parents. And I just came right, in. Just and it was came like, in. It was like, you're your daddy then, now. Yeah, who's your dad? And, and, then, well, and the kid is like, oh, you're my dad. You know what I mean? And so because I would just view like she's on the poster. Right. So right. inevitably, it's her creation. It's her. This. So I always view it. It's always at minimum 51 percent hers because she right. did that. You know, I'm always in service of that. And so. Um, that's just how I always see what my job is to be. It's like, how do I, how do I help her make the thing that she wants to make yeah. as her piece of art and, um, and offer what I have to offer to it. And I, I just got to a point, too, where I just was like, I just want to be around dope shit. 
Yeah. And you know, and you know, you work a lot of times on jobs that that are cool, but they're not things you're like super like. Oh, this is representative of me, and I felt like this show is so rare. The fact that it's getting made is like. Right. <laughs> stunning to me that this is even being made and so I was like I don't know if we're going to get a chance like this again past the pilot so I just was like I just want to be a part of something creatively that is like cool and interesting and different and spoke to me and so my point of view of the show has always just been I just want to walk away from this at some point and be like you could watch the whole series and just be like I'm just so proud of it from start to finish and I just feel like it's dope and I just want to be a part of things like that were there influences as you were sort of thinking about what Insecure would be as a television series, like filmically or television show-wise. I mean, look, you've done a ton of stuff in the comedy space, but you like you know you have references like School Days and yeah. you've got to have it. I feel like there's a lot of like influence in there. 100%. I'm curious, like what touchstones did you guys use like that, that sort of gave you a sort of cinematic shorthand as you were making the thing? Absolutely. Like I think we leaned on, it's, it's funny, I think there's a, like a bit of, like Issa, Malina, and I always called shows like three the hard way because we were like nobody was thinking this thing was going to be anything and right. we were just in it together. So I feel like there's a lot of like Issa in the the awkwardness of those things obviously and we also cite Curb as obviously a big right. influence of that type of, of in that type of a show and, and I always felt like too there's a lot of happy endings in this show especially when the four girls are together right. where you're just like obviously you know you want to have you know like real moments or whatever yeah. but then you just want to have like like Kelly, like Natasha Roth will come in and just kill it. And like, here's 8,000 jokes, you know what I yep. mean? And we would just be, that was one thing on Happy Endings I learned was just like, jokes, like here's like yeah. eight jokes and you could have guys like Damon Wayans Jr. and Adam Pally just come in and like crush jokes and Casey Wilson. And that was one of the things that I always wanted to be able to have is like, if people are laughing, like that's a good thing, right? right. And so we just always want to have like a ton of jokes to be ready and available and like an improv a lot. Like that Happy Endings had a lot of improv yeah. and we wanted to, I wanted to like kind of infuse that and, and Issa too, infuse that and that's obviously Issa's great and Shane and Yvonne are like amazing. I mean, you could give them like one joke and they'll make eight. Yeah. Um, in that way and I think Melina brought in a, I think in terms of influences right I think she brought a lot of the cinematic flavor to our to our thing right well, obviously there's lots of you know quiet moments right that almost play like a music video in a lot of ways where it's just like Issa walking down the street or Issa reading or Issa cooking and it's just how do you make that little small moment feel super cinematic and I think again people like Scorsese and like Melina went to NYU, like, like NYU and AF Foster there's a ton of you know, Scorsese influences and things like that that obviously play um, in that space. So I think that's the, the cinematic part. We tried to, like, make this little show about, like, Lemur Park kind of right. have some real scope, you know? What is your process like? I am always fascinated, particularly by TV writers, when you have to gear shift. You've been on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and suddenly we're moving into the insecure world. What is your personal process like when you have been so immersed in one story world and then you have to gear shift to being in another story world? That's a great question. It's pretty hard, uh, to be honest. Like One of the things that when we were first doing Insecure was like on Happy Endings in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, we do a lot of like pops, right? It's like, oh, it's like the time that I went to the store and then you pop to like what that moment is for a joke, right? It's like fun, easy jokes and character stuff. And in some ways we were like starting to write the series with like pops of like Issa here and Issa there. And as we kept reading them, they just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. You know, even though conceptually we knew we had liked that on other shows and we felt, oh, this is a way to do it 
it just was and it was a thing that I had to like let go of because you mm. can get in that like what works on network mm. and now this is HBO we have to like kind of like right. have it have a little bit more of a different feel and also the feel of its own show right it has to find its voice and so I think um, you know that was a thing that we had to like kind of figure out in the first you know like couple of months of breaking the show was again things that I had to learn what worked for me in that world and then what wasn't going to work for this show kind of let go of but it, it took I will say it took like a couple of months to and I had been off Brooklyn Nine-Nine by that point um, like February of 2015 and we started the writers room on Insecure like December of 2015 but even still it still took it a couple still of more months, months later yeah. you're yeah. still finding yourself falling yeah. into those because uh, I had been I had been working in network television for like you know 12, 13 years at that point you know what I mean so I had been on that was sort of ingrained in me in a lot of ways and TV was moving into a new arena and so I had to learn that like oh you can have like little quiet moments of just seeing her walk you know which you can't do on network television do you feel like the the sort of the hbo world lives in the sort of liminal space between sort of network television and film and 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 i asked that sort of as a as a preemptive question to talk about on court like was your experience on insecure what sort of led you to say okay now i need to direct a movie uh really no i had okay. wanted to direct um i directed a super small movie out of college uh <laughs> that was horrible, but um, I, I, but I wanted to keep doing it, and I, I just earned my bones in television, and so I knew I was. I wrote Uncorked in like 2014, oh, wow. Wow. so I was still on Brooklyn Nine Nine at that point, and so. Um, but I wanted to write a movie, one that I knew was small that I could direct. That if I had to get like a million dollars or seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, could I? I could just go do it. Um, something that was personal, um, and so that's sort of how that led to happen. But the interesting thing was. It took th it took three years from the time I wrote it, and I was done around 2015. And it, but it took three years to make. And the, I say the beauty of that is you get frustrated, obviously, in the moment because you're like, I want to go make this movie. I want to go make this movie. But I got to watch so many different directors, obviously like Melina and like Kevin Bray, and 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 again, so many other great directors we've had on our show that it just I got to just see it from a different perspective than different than like normal network television. Because right. to your point. Insecure, the way we film it does kind of have movie elements to right. it. And so I got to just watch something have more cinematic feel and just watch other directors more up close. And I wasn't like in a writer's room on a TV show, you're not really on set unless you're asked to go to set. So you might be on set, right. you know, two weeks, like two times, you know, for five days. Whereas on Insecure, I'm running, the, you know, I'm the showrunner, so I'm there for the, for the whole three months of the production. So I'm just soaking up. Right. I'm seeing just so much more. I'm learning about, I'm learning the craft of things. I'm asking more questions. I'm watching more, I'm watching more movies in a different right. way now. And so it really, I think if I had gotten to make the movie three years prior, it would not be, I would have had the same ideas and thoughts to make it in, as I did in 2018. So you, so you wrote the script in 2014. Yes. I want to go back to that really quickly. Um, did you see the documentary Saw immediately before Writing the script, so Which did that have what, anything to do with it? I remember the first time I watched it, 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 and it did a beat, there was yes. this broke beef moment where I was like, "Do I want to be a sommelier?" <laughs> right. and, and then I was I'm like, "I am definitely not. Like, I I can't really distinguish between wines. I'm like, who am I kidding? There, it would have been a total disaster." But I'm curious, like, where did that story come from? Absolutely. So where it came from originally was I knew I wanted to write. Um, as my first movie, I wanted because I felt like you know on TV, like you're saying, like you write in so many other uh, showrunners' voices. And I didn't really know what my voice as a writer was. I was having a hard time tapping into that. And so you get, you know, you, you know, 
and look, as you know, as a, you know, working at CAA, like you try to get, okay, I'm going to TV writer. Now I'm going to write this movie. Right? right. And I was getting asked to write like, you know, sequels to things and remakes of stuff. And I just was like, well, that's not going to be my voice. Like I was like, I'm writing in, so much, in somebody else's voices so much. The first thing I write in the movies, I want it to be mine because otherwise I don't know what that is. And I'm afraid that I won't ever find it. And so I knew that I wanted to tell a father-son story. I'm a father and I had an interesting relationship like with my dad. And I, once I had kids, I started to see, see my father differently. And it made me understand him better. And I was like, I want to write about this. And I typically don't, I was also like feeling like you don't typically see men of color have father-son stories without the father's absence being the crux and the spine of the story. Absolutely true. And I was like, my dad and I, sometimes he was too much around. And <laughs> and I just wanted to write that. I, I feel like white people get to make like Manchester by the Sea and like all right. these sort of amazing, like, you know, Goodwill Hunting. And we don't get to make those kinds of movies. And I'm a fan of those movies. And... Um, I wanted to write a, a movie about that, of just a father and a son having just, as people of color, just having a human issue on like a Tuesday. What does that look like, right. you know? And I, and in my family, we had a f uh, furniture store. That was our family business. So I was going to ask, like, I don't think you have a barbecue. <laughs> no, 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 no. But what is the stand-in? So furniture store. So, so furniture store. So my grandfather started a furniture store from nothing. And then he had a stroke. My dad was in college. And my dad dropped out of college and took it over. No questions asked. And growing up, I was sort of going to be next in line to like do that. Right. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was interested in writing, but I didn't, again, this is, you know, pre spike. I didn't know you were going to do this. Yeah. And so obviously I became a writer and then, you know, my dad and I sort of figured out like the balance of that and the furniture store ended up closing, but that was neither here nor there. What it became an indictment of kind of was like, why don't you like, why don't you love me the way I loved my father in terms of like dropping out? Like, why don't you know what I mean? And that's what I realized as I became a father was like, Oh, that's what that stuff was about. And I wanted to just write a small movie about that that had like a family business that was blue collar and nobody wants to watch a movie about a writer. So I was like, it needs something that felt a little bit more elevated, right. something that the father would not have an issue with in terms of like race being a reason you can't do something. We, right. we have a black president, of course we can have like a black sommelier, <laughs> but it was just that I don't understand it and really why won't you do what I want you to do? Right. It could be anything. And so, but I knew I wanted it to be something that had a little bit of a rarefied air. So. Uh, at the time, I was reading all these articles, of, and I knew I wanted to be something that typically you didn't see people of color go into. Right. Those were the things I knew. And so at the time, I was reading a lot of articles about these sort of black opera singers who had grown up listening to hip hop, and their opera was sort of infused by that. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's really dope. Like, just to see like a black opera singer, like, that's kind of cool. You know, yeah. and I don't typically see that. And I just, but some reason, I just couldn't hook into what that was going to look like. And then I was not a wine drinker at all. And I, my cousin was getting married in Paris. I had never been to Europe either. And I was like, it was around my wife's anniversary. And I was like, look, I'm never going to like wine. It has to happen in Paris. Because if I, I'm, I'm drinking Behringer at White Zinfandel at Frankie Beverly concert. So uh, I got to get my taste up somehow. Oh my God, and yeah. so I was, so I went to Paris. I took like a wine, like 101 class at this wine bar. Mm -hmm. And they just made it super easy to understand. And then the whole time I was there, I was just like, got into wine and champagne and just all this stuff. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. So then I just went to learn more about wine. And then I turned on some. <laughs> And I was like, yo, this is dope. Like, yeah. this, it's like a hoop dreams of wine. It, it, right? It's really, it is a surprise. Because I remember turning it on and being like, I, 
am I really going to watch yeah. this? And within five minutes, I was like, this is wild. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Because it just tells a human story. Yeah. You're following four people. Are they going to pass a test? And you're just see how hard it is. It's just this, it's that journey, right? But it, and it's also this just like there, it's a, such a specific world. Yes. Like right when they're like, you know, this wine is old world. Yeah. Like, like, and yeah. But it's like a very formal process. And there are all these rules and yes. sort of how it's done yep. that no one outside of that world is going to be familiar no. with until you're part of it. And it's I super think, intimidating. Exactly. Because nobody wants to go like order wine and feel stupid. I mean, we all just sort of say, oh, give me the house for it. Cause I, mean, like, I don't, that's what I do. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's what I used to do too. And so I was watching the documentary and I was like, oh, this is what the son should want to do. I was like, food, wine, like, you know, it's a natural kind of like, the, yep. he and the father don't get along, but food and wine pair. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But I was like, I don't, and this is again, you're just like how you're just sort of ingrained to be closed-minded. I was just like, oh, but there's no like black people in this thing. Right. And then as soon as I say that, D. Lynn, the black Somalia guy, and I was like, "That's it. That's all I need. I just need to see one." One, right? And that's sort of how it, I was like, "Great, that's what the." And then I just the story. I was on a plane back, and the idea just kind of started, and that's kind of how it happened. I'm curious how people responded as you tried to get the movie made, like, <laughs> because again, like that's not a script. I mean, on its face, yeah. you know, father owns the restaurant. He wants to do something different. Like, we've seen that mm -hmm. story before. We have not seen it with black people, and we certainly haven't seen the sort of barbecue to, to you know, French wine transition before. How did people respond as you were like, no, 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 this is the movie I want to make, and I know it's good? I mean, I think it responded like how you were saying earlier, how the blacklist stuff goes. <laughs> it's right. like, this is great, but no, this is cool. This is like a great story. It's like a super like small, like, oh, it's like intimate and like interesting and yeah. like, but uh, no, nobody's going to give you money for this. And, uh, and, and that was sort of the, it was always like, but what was interesting was the actors we would give it to would be like, yeah, I want to do this. Right. But we just couldn't get. The money we just couldn't get the money, right? Um, and it was just hard. It was hard whether I was a first time director, whether it was this is super small, where does this play in theaters, blah blah right. blah. And Netflix fully hadn't kind of come out in 2015 and was like, we're making these sort of things right. that can exist on a different platform, yeah. right? Where it's not box office contingent, it's not you yeah, know, yeah. blah blah. And so, um, and so off of that, it, it was hard. It was hard for a myriad of reasons. We look like we'd have it, we won't have it. Um, so, so it was tough because it's not anything that you could be like. It's not high concept. Right. It's not super like about like a burden that they could just tap into. Like it's not a slave movie. It's not, right. and it's no knock on those movies. It's just like no, it's no, not. No. It's nothing that you just go like if you're a white executive, you just go like the way I see black people is like this is it. This is this is what I do. Right. Like because yeah. there's a, a portion of the movie where like he goes to Paris. Right. And you're like you don't see black people in Europe in American movies, but we obviously go. But I was like, I can't think of a time I've seen an American movie where there's like black people in Paris or, or in Europe just being just existing. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's and there's even subtler stuff in the film. Like I, you know, you ha when he arrives in Paris, you have these cuts, and you're seeing a lot yeah. of black people. Yeah. Uh, which, if you've been to Paris, you know is very much normal. 100%. And by the way, there are black people who are sort of lower middle class and sort of yep. working class, and there are black people who are literally, I mean, I will never forget it as long as I live, a dude in a perfectly tailored suit on a bicycle, <laughs> like literally like riding past the Louvre, and I was like, yeah, this is the this is the Paris that they don't show yeah. us in American yeah. media. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so even the subtle stuff I thought was just very well done. Yeah, and it's it's like to that point was like I was like I want to see I don't want him to be the only black person right. as if he's the anomaly. So I was like take me to the parts where we are at, and yep. then we were filming stuff where it was like we've I mean it was just looked like yeah. if you didn't see the French like words you would just be like oh this is like Crenshaw. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. While you're working on the sort of long journey of bringing Uncorked to the screen, does the script evolve at all? Are you doing any rewrites during 100, that? A hundred percent. And I will say, like, in the beginning, weirdly, I had them pass the test. 
And it really? always seemed kind of false to me. And I, and I was yeah. just like, oh, uh, you know, I, and obviously without giving too much away, you know, I was just like, I want to, yeah, so to your point, it continually evolved. And it continually evolved once I went to Memphis. That was the biggest, I think, mm-hmm. evolution in the, in, the, in the movie was like, you know, you sort of are writing about a place in kind of a vacuum, you know, a little bit. But when you go and you talk to people and you say like, oh, like this is obviously like the Lorraine Motel where King was killed and where the I'm a man poster started. Right. And and you just get like it infused how Courtney would be right. His character would be and how Elijah would be and where he would grow up. And then like, what do you wear? What how do you talk? Who where would you hang out? And it just becomes more like a kind of a suit that's off the rack into a more tailored suit Um, being. And I think the jump to Memphis, obviously, I think was the biggest thing uh in the in that at least for me um creatively was the biggest change just sort of specificity yeah. in place yeah the other thing that i think is really notable about the film is music um and i i think it was i don't know there seemed to be a synthesis of sort of both realms like memphis and paris and i feel like that was conscious and i'm just curious how you went about putting together the music for the film uh, that's a great question. Uh, I used the music supervisor from Insecure, uh, Kier, who's who's awesome. And one of the things I knew I wanted, I feel like you hadn't really seen Memphis on film beside Hustle and Flow. Right. And obviously this is a different Memphis, Very right? Much, and yeah. so I felt like I wanted like music to be, and music is such a huge part of Memphis. I mean, mm-hmm. Stax Records, all these sort of Elvis Presley. Again, it's a, such a blue, all this blues music. Oh. It's such an iconic music city. And so I knew I wanted Courtney's sound to be very of that Sam and Dave, Al Green sound. Right. Obviously we couldn't get all, all that stuff clearance wise, but, mean, but the vibe of that certainly, a lot of blues is his sound. And I feel like Mamadou's coming up in a time where you got like Yo Gotti and Black Youngster and, and Money Bag Yo, and I wanted that sound to be what he would listen to, right? So it was like, I was like, there's nothing in this movie that's not gonna be Memphis, that would be his world, right? right? So whenever we're around Memphis, that's what we're gonna hear. And then I said, but when he goes to Paris, right. I was like, I want him to hear French hip hop because I was like, okay, if this guy is like in this new place, right, he'd probably be more open to wanting to hear that sound, mm-hmm. right? Or if he's streaming music or somebody's putting them up on this artist, right? And so I just felt like when he's in Paris, that's all I want you to hear is French hip hop. And it's, in some ways, I felt symbolically and thematically he's leaving Memphis behind. Right. And so I felt like I didn't want him, I didn't want him musically or you sonically to still hear the city. You would still hear that through Courtney, but you weren't going to hear that sound through Elijah. And I wanted him to fully be I'm all in on Paris. And right. that's music, that's how I dress. Um even his wardrobe changes we wanted to make when he got to Paris. It's like when you go on that trip and you're like, "Oh, I'm going to be I'm going to be killing him in this overcoat." You know I, I'm I mean? going to say I'm going to say specifically about the overcoats. The man is traveling with a large number of overcoats <laughs> to, to, be, to have a father who owns a barbecue restaurant coming from Memphis. <laughs> he has a large number of, of, of really just absolutely amazingly colored overcoats. <laughs> it was honestly the only thing that rang false to me in the entire movie was how well-dressed he was in Paris. Since we're discussing it, I'm just gonna, gonna point that out. But I also knew it was you, and so I had a feeling that you probably had yeah, to Yeah, we had to have him look good. We he looked great, yeah. he looked yeah, great. Yeah. I was jealous. I would wear literally every single one of them. I just don't know that a dude who's like, I don't know if I could afford to get to Paris. <laughs> Has four beautiful overcoats to sort of switch out. <laughs> what at he went to H&M and got like a sixty dollar overcoat. I didn't say that they were thick overcoats. I'm just saying, look, put me onto the store that has the sixty dollar <laughs> versions of those. And I- even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I will definitely cop. Um, no, we definitely, of course, kind of, yeah. Can I just say thank you for thinking about things like soundtrack, which has become a totally lost art form. Yeah. Do you have a favorite movie soundtrack? Is there anything that sort of, or a favorite score, anything Oof. that you sort of come back to? That's a great, wow, these are great questions. Um... I don't know. I gotta think about that. Like, that's actually a good question. But I'm always aware of sound, uh, especially in, in movies. At least in terms of like, why am I here? I always go like, why? Like again, why? Am, wh- like, what's the choice? You know, and and why am I supposed to be? And I guess I again, those three years helped me be more cognizant of those little elements, right? Sound or the absence of sound, uh, you know, color, just all those things that yeah. are in a. I mean, that's the, I think the beauty of of cinema is you get to play with so many elements that you can manipulate and do that evoke emotion and feeling. And that was the other thing that I think, like we had a great DP, um, it's kind of Elliot Davis, who has shot more movies than I, I would even ever begin to learn from. And he was just like, you gotta go to the edge and just not go off. He was like, people will remember a really bad, great movie before they remember a mediocre movie. Mm-hmm. And I was like, people still talk about Waterworld and and, and horrible mm-hmm. movies all the time. Show like people talk about, but people remember because it's like at least you were like willing to go right out to a point as opposed to like sort of a movie that's sort of neither fish nor fowl, right? Yeah. And so we were just like, how do we even the choice to shoot anamorphic? We right. were like, how do we give? This movie that's this little tiny, at least emotionally, yeah. this father-son story set in Memphis, how do we give that scope, right? How do we make yeah. it feel bigger than what it is? Especially when we're, and we're like, look, we're going to Paris. And even how we wanted to shoot the vineyards, like my point of view is that typically when people see vineyards, they're thinking about it from their point of view, which is um, I'm having a glass of wine. It's so beautiful right. in the sunset, right? But these are workers, they, they're not there to like bask in the sun, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's hard break, backbreaking work. and. And even in the movie, like we're trying to constantly juxtapose the work Courtney's doing as uh, the, like he has to wake up super early at the crack of dawn. It's still it's still night outside, and and the hard work it takes to give this product to the table that people just eat or throw away like right. ribs, and this thing that's wine that people kind of don't know anything about and kind of yeah, it's whatever. And it's like how hard it takes just to get a bottle of wine to the table. Right. And it's so hard. And to see that there's a similarity, and obviously as a father-son thing, we're trying to juxtapose those things too. But but all those things were were all choices along the way. That was the other thing I really appreciated about it is I feel like, you know, so we, we think of barbecue as like the sort of down-home comfort food, specifically black food. And so mm-hmm. sort of it gets underappreciated yeah. for, for its sophistication. Yeah. I felt like you were sort of laying those things, things beside each other and saying, no, there's there are regional differences. Absolutely. There are ingredients that yeah. are specific, and these are things that are sort of carried generationally, yeah. recipe-wise and otherwise. And it was just nice to sort of see that sort of laid out without it, even necessarily explicitly saying it. Yeah. All right, so now I around. am just thinking about Central Barbecue in Memphis, though. So how dare you for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly. Oh my that God! One of the best meals of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we're gonna round out to the our, our final. Uh, Three slash four questions, um, and, and yeah, these are the hard ones ish. Uh, so the other question was the Ava question. This this next these next two questions sort of come from Sidney Pollack, who I worked for. Who used to say that the only two things he was interested in making movies about were love and war, because they're the only things that we don't have a greater understanding of through like all of human mm-hmm. history. So favorite movie about love, favorite movie about war. Oof, favorite movie about war. Uh, 
I love Save It Private Ryan. It's such a great, I think, small, small, even though it's obviously that yeah. first scene is obviously big. Like, even the scene, like, to me, my favorite scene is like when um, Adam Goldberg is getting stabbed in the upstairs in the. Uh, Attic, oh, the clock tower and then thing? the, the yeah. clock tower thing, and then his the guy. It's it's just so quiet, yeah. and that movie's so loud and so busy. But that moment to me is I, it's such a hard. I can't even really watch that scene anymore because it to me it got to like what the essence of that is, right? Which is like, and then the, his friend watches, and then this other soldier watches the German soldier walk past him, and they don't say anything like. That to me, I was like, that's what that's the ugliness of war mm-hmm. right there. Like that yeah. all the big battle stuff is like whatever. Right. That moment is terrifying to me still. Uh, so that's one of my it just I think they just captured the smallness of them on that journey and what that was like. I, I still love that movie. Um my favorite movie about love. Mm. That's the hard one. That is, that the is hard, hard. Really, yeah. That is hard. D- does it have to be like Super dramatic-y about no, no, love. No, 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 not at all. I mean, look, when Harry Met Sally is a t- totally legitimate answer for I was that actually going to say really? when Harry Met Sally, yeah. yes. I mean, I think for a lot of people, that's the answer. Yeah. It's great. It is, because it also says to me, it, what I love about that movie is timing is everything in love, right? And when you meet somebody and where you are in your cycle of life, because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, they they were supposed to be together but they had to go through these other little journeys, which I think is true about love. Like yeah. even when I met my wife, I met my wife when I was 16 years old oh, wow. and she was 15. And we just met in 1990 at this like leadership conference. She was from San Jose and I was from LA. And then we hit it off and it was great. And, but we would like talk every now and then. And then in 92, I was at USC and she was getting ready to go to Spelman. And so we were trying to start it, but we were like, how is this going to work right. across the country? This <laughs> is crazy. And this is like, you know, pre-email, pre-email yeah. stuff. Yeah, no, this you know is, this is like, like a calling card days. This is, yeah. this is like dorm room phone oh, calls. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like we write letters. Like we still have the letters we wrote to each other. Really? Oh my gosh. And then in 92, we both, started, it was like, this isn't going to work. Right. So I had girlfriends, she had boyfriends. And then in 98, 99, wow. she was in law school. And then she was like, well, I'm about to graduate. Maybe I come out there and we give it a try. And then we've been together ever since. But so it's like to your point about these three moments in time that it was like, oh, we're supposed to be together. But obviously these moments, timing is everything, yeah. right? And those things. So I, I relate to that movie just because I think about the three stages they had to go through and it, it ties directly to I'm me. I'm just so. saying it sounds like a Prentice Penny movie. <laughs> I'm not saying it, it's going to happen. Woodwatch. Woodwatch. Yeah. Um, what is, you know, we asked this question of everybody because I feel like we get all sorts of answers from, you know, just viewing experience, whether it's childhood or something more recent. What is kind of the single image that has stayed with you most from a movie throughout your life? And that can be a cut. That can be, you know, a sort of still frame. It can be a transition. Anything that's really imprinted on you. Mm. Wow. Oof, I don't want Dead Silence to go, but that's, God, these are great. I wish I had these but. Uh, before these are these are great. Well, it's not as interesting if we just like give it to you before. Yeah, you <laughs> have too answer. much time. But here's the thing: some people, some people in that scenario, then spend all their time trying to come up with like the perfect answer that makes yeah. them sound smart. We're not interested in that. We want the like, what's the thing that you're just like, yeah, that's the one that keeps coming back in my head. I think the one of the things, not to just quote Spike all the time. I think there's a. I think the do the right thing sequence when he's going into everybody and everybody's talking about race mm. yeah. was such a like, again, just like getting me to think so nonlinear about things and that sequence. And I remember at the time that sequence, the, the, the I guess it was, I think it was the cop who was talking about black people 
at the time Ice Cube's first album came out and I remember he had that and I was in high school and I remember hearing that on the album yeah. America's Most Wanted and somehow understanding that cinema affects art it, like music like other things that are non-cinema related and he, it just was like so it's just so interesting to me and like that sequence to be able to do a sequence like that and it's like convey everything immediately in a one minute what however long that sequence was it just those I can just see the push-ins. I can see the right to camp. It was like breaking the fourth wall. It was all these things that, mm. again, you're going along that movie in one direction, and then here I think Spike's great at like let me break you of this sort of narrative a little bit and kind of get into something thematic. Uh, I, that sequence it, it just is seared in my mind. Uh, I think I may know the answer to this question too, but uh, last question: You get to screen one movie for everyone on Earth simultaneously, worldwide screening. What's the movie? Simultaneously worldwide. Oof. Like, what's the movie that everybody needs to watch? Just for the good of humanity. Uh, this will surprise you. What do you think I'm going to say? I'm curious. I thought you might say do the right thing, which no. is actually both of our it's answers. both of our answers, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Breakfast Club. That's a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like, just remembering, I think a lot of times we, we're still teenagers in the way we think and operate, and that movie does such a great job at, like, Again, like meeting a movie where you think it's going to be like, oh, this little teen thing, whatever. And then things that they get to, you know, where you're like Emilio Estevez's dad and these sort of like what it's like to be the Molly. Like undoing the underbelly of what it's like when you're those things, right? And the perceptions we have of other people. I think right now in our country, we have all these perceptions of what we think other people are like. And I think understanding that there's another, we all have an underbelly to us that are, that's complicated and hard to understand. That movie, I think, does such a great job, again, without having to comment super specifically on it and seeing... Yeah, it's it's hard being all of us. So let's just have a little bit more like empathy with each other. Can't think of a better way to end. Absolutely. Brenda, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. From Luminary Media, the Blacklist Podcast is a production of the Blacklist and Night Planet Audio. Our executive producers are me, Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagan, Hansani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Bertel composed our theme music, and this episode was engineered, edited, and mixed by Kevin Liu. Have a question, comment, criticism, whatever, hit us up on social media. I am Franklin Leonard on Twitter and Franklin J. Leonard on Instagram. Kate is that Hagan girl. Girl is G-R-R-L on both Instagram and Twitter. And we are The Blacklist, the B-L-C-K-L-S-T on both Instagram and Twitter and find us online at blacklist.com. That is B-L-C-K-L-S-T.com. Blacklist with no vowels. We'll see you online.